I tell you a true crime story and we drink. The following content may be disturbing to some. Discretion is advised. If you choose to enjoy one of our themed margaritas, please ensure that you are of legal drinking age and have fun but drink responsibly. better way to honor the totally hallmark holiday of Valentine's Day than with our first cult. Today we talk about the unending wild devotion of a cult member to a cult leader. A weird kind of love, but a kind of love nonetheless. And when I tell you this cult was all about free love and public nudity, you might see the connection even a little bit more. Today, we talk about the followers of Rajneesh Sri Bhagwan, or the Rajneeshis, or the Sannyasins, or a variety of other names that they've been called throughout the years. In this episode, we're going to call their leader Bhagwan, although he also went by a variety of names, and by the time he died, he was going by the name Osho. This story has immigration fraud bioterrorism, illegal wiretapping, attempted assassination, and even more. Okay, so for the record, the people who lived in Rajneesh Param, many of them say that the public nudity and the free love out in the streets is somewhat overblown, although it did happen, um, but mostly inside people's own homes. But regardless, it's, it's Valentine's Day, so we're going with I'm it. I'm not the biggest fan of ginger, but ginger and green tea are staples of Indian cuisine, and the Rajneesh movement started in India. So let's give it a shot. Now, be forewarned, this margarita does take some prep work. You're going to need to infuse your tequila with fresh ginger. I sliced it into thin rounds and then put it in a mason jar, right here, with tequila. And to infuse, it needs to sit at room temperature for several days. This particular infusion sat for five days, which makes me think it's gonna be pretty strong. So to our shaker, I'm gonna add two parts of our ginger tequila. Oh my gosh, I'm gonna make a giant mess the whole time. That's cool, whatever. Cool. For this particular margarita, you're also going to need some pretty strong green tea. I prepared mine with three bags. I brewed it with three bags of tea, and then I chilled it. So we're gonna do three parts of this. recipe requires honey simple syrup so you should make the same honey simple syrup from episode 2 personally I just added hot water to honey in equal parts to make my simple syrup we will add one part of the honey simple syrup and then to that we will add one part triple sec and one part lime juice We'll add our ice and then we will shake. Okay, we're all shaken up and let's say it together people. Bougie people strain. So we'll strain onto some fresh ice into a salt rimmed glass. Ta-da! Okay, now I'm gonna clean up a little bit and then we can get started. So in my opinion, this cult is relatively unknown. 
I could really only find very short YouTube clips or hours long podcasts that people had just uploaded to YouTube. There is a fantastic 2018 documentary on Netflix about this whole Rajneesh Puram, but it is six one hour episodes. It's pretty in depth. I did find one documentary on YouTube, but it was clearly made by a Christian organization in the 1980s and it was so biased I could only make it about one minute through. So I'm hoping that this is somewhere in between those short two minute YouTube clips and the six hour documentary. But if you do find yourself super interested, I highly recommend watching that documentary. And there's at least one podcast that's solely dedicated to the Rajneesh Puram. So there's a lot out there if you have more interest. I gotta say, this story is incredibly complicated and I did my best to boil it down to the most important and most exciting parts, but it's pretty complicated. Most Americans today probably only remember Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh as the sex guru or the guru of the rich. He's most infamous for his teaching on sex and his 93 Rolls Royces. But our story actually begins in India in 1931. It was there that Chandra Mohan Jain was born. He was raised by his maternal grandparents, and as a teenager, he turned into a typically rebellious kid, questioning everything from religion to politics to social norms. This would obviously become a trend throughout his entire life. Bhagwan spent the early part of his life studying philosophy and traveling all around India, speaking about mysticism and Eastern spirituality. Bhagwan was convinced that capitalism was actually the solution to the problems of the world and the problems of India. He was actually a contemporary of Mahatma Gandhi, but this belief in capitalism really led him to say some pretty controversial things against Mahatma Gandhi. At one point, he called him a, quote, masochist who loved poverty, end quote. Yikes. He advocated and promoted what he called free love. In 1968, he published a book entitled From Sex to Superconsciousness, and that's how most of the world became aware of Bhagwan. Bhagwan supported technology, science, and all kinds of birth control methods, including abortion. He also claimed that people with disabilities should be killed in order to free them from a life of suffering and to potentially allow them to be reborn into a different, better life. Eventually, Bhagwan found a series of wealthy investors who helped him to create a meditation center, and he ended up quitting his job as a philosophy professor. He began recruiting followers, whom he called Neo-Sanyasins, but for the most part, we're going to call them Rajneeshis. At this time, he officially changed his birth name to Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh. Bhagwan means blessed one. Sri has the English equivalent of the word sir, and Rajneesh means teacher. By the early 1970s, Bhagwan had amassed nearly four thousand Rajneeshis in India. He founded an ashram in the city of Pune. The disciples who went there were expected to take Hindi names. They were expected to wear a necklace with 108 beads and an image of Bhagwan, and they were expected to wear robes of either orange or red. In India, they were often called the orange people. 
this sort of became a worldwide phenomenon and he was recruiting people from all over the world, but primarily from Europe who moved to Pune in order to study under Bhagwan and to be a part of his movement. By 1981, it was time for Bhagwan and his disciples to move once more. And it was at this point that our secondary lead character comes into play. Ma Anand Sheila, who had been appointed as Bhagwan's personal secretary, really takes her rise to power at this time. In my opinion, Sheila is by far the most interesting character in this entire story and could definitely be an episode by herself. Sheila was tasked with finding a new location for all of the disciples to move from because things were not looking so positive politically for the Rajneeshis in India. Plus, they wanted to be able to expand and grow. Sheila had actually gone to college in the United States and she believed that the United States was the place where the Rajneeshi should move because of all of the religious freedom that was supposedly granted to people in the United States. She found a 100 square mile ranch in rural Oregon that they purchased for about $6 million and they renamed Rancho Rajneesh. It became the headquarters for the Rajneesh Empire and was the site of the massive disasters that were to come. In 1981, Antelope, Oregon was barely considered a town. There were probably less than 50 people. Most of them were retirees and most of them were working class people that had spent their retirement on buying their first homes in Antelope, Oregon. It's probably pretty hard to imagine, but just think about having 4,000 people moving from a totally different country right next door to you in your small, sleepy town many of them from tons of different countries around the world, wearing red robes or sometimes nothing at all, loudly celebrating free love. The xenophobia was strong, friends, and it grew stronger and stronger by the day. It didn't help that within a year of arriving, the Rajneeshis were involved in a series of legal battles with these neighbors in Antelope over many things, but primarily over land usage. When they came, they had purchased the land under the idea that it would be used for agricultural purposes. It was ranch land, and that's how it was zoned. However, when they arrived, it became pretty obvious pretty quickly that they were really trying to build a city. From their opinion, the Rajneeshis believed that the people in Antelope were bigoted and weren't allowing them to practice their religions and their beliefs freely the way that they had believed would happen in the United States. Letters to the state newspapers really vilified the Rajneeshis. They compared their town to a new Sodom and Gomorrah. Another referred to them as a, quote, cancer in our midst, end quote. The local Oregonians from Antelope and from surrounding areas called them red rats or red vermin. I think I forgot to mention this, but a few years earlier, Bhagwan had actually just stopped talking in public. Despite the fact that all of these people were coming, they were giving their money to the Rajneesh Foundation, he was not even speaking to them. And so Sheila really became his mouthpiece during all of this. 
and some would argue she was really the mastermind behind the compound. Under Sheila's leadership within three years, the compound grew to over 7,000 people and it basically was a city. It had a fire department, a police department, an airstrip, a library, townhomes, just basically amenities that you would imagine would be in a town. They even had their own post office. Along with all of this city infrastructure that they were building, they were also building quite an ambitious farm system. They were hoping to make Oregon a really self-sustaining paradise for them to live in for the long term. They'd even begun to really rebuild and rejuvenate the local ecosystem. However, for whatever reason, the hostilities began to grow and grow and grow between the Rajneeshis and the local people in Antelope and other surrounding areas. The Rajneeshis faced nearly constant pressure from local coalitions, including one that had the guy who founded Nike in it. I don't know, there's like a, a story with a waffle iron and rubber, but that's for another time. Because they weren't being allowed to build the way they wanted to build in what they deemed Rajneeshpuram, their land outside of Antelope, they decided to just start buying up land in Antelope. They had a lot of wealthy investors and a lot of wealthy people that lived in the compound, and they used that money to just buy everything that was for sale in Antelope. They even bought the local diner that the local Antelope residents went to, and there's a very funny clip of them grilling bananas instead of bacon. Suffice it to say, the local Antelope residents definitely stopped going to that diner. Eventually, because they had so many residents of Antelope who were U.S. citizens, they were able to place Rajneeshis onto the city council and enough of them that they ended up changing the name of Antelope to Rajneesh. They basically made it their own city, and they even changed all of the street names. It appears they weren't super interested in making friends with their antelope neighbors. The legal battles over land usage continued, and them taking over the city continued, and in 1982, Attorney General for the state of Oregon, whose name was Dave Fronmeyer, issued an opinion saying that the Rajneeshis were violating the separation of church and state, particularly with the school, because they were a religious group that had quote-unquote taken over the city government. In my opinion, that's kind of a questionable xenophobic response. The truth is there are lots of communities throughout the United States where there's a large religious population that sort of runs things, so to speak. I mean, you can just look at Mormons in Utah as an example, and there's plenty of other examples. But this was an Eastern religion, and people looked a little bit different, and wore different clothing, and had different beliefs. Anyway, by this point, the Rajneeshis had no intention of backing down, and so they decided to expand their reach by not just taking over the city government of Antelope, but by moving to take over the county government of the larger Wasco County. At that time, at least, Oregon law allowed anyone who had been living in the state for at least 20 days and who had intentions to stay in the state to vote in state elections. So the Rajneeshis decided to travel all around the United States 
and pick up as many people experiencing homelessness as they could find, promising them food, promising them shelter. They brought them back to the compound at Rajneeshpuram with the intention of having them vote in these county elections. They were not expecting there to be so many problems with such a large influx of people. And there were problems. So to help counteract that problems, Evidently, they gave these people experiencing homelessness beer laced with drugs. And when that wasn't enough, and they realized that having these people there was more trouble than it was worth, they literally just drove them around Oregon and dropped them off in random places. They just dumped them back on the street. In addition, Sheila coordinated the attack of at least 10 salad bars at restaurants throughout Wasco County by infecting them with salmonella. Their goal was to incapacitate the people who could vote in the county by making them sick with salmonella poisoning. The thought was they would be too sick to go vote. And then the Rajnichis with their new friends that they had brought in from busing around the country would go vote and would win in these county elections. The attack sickened 751 people, including Wasco County officials, and 45 people did end up hospitalized, but thankfully no one was killed. This incident is still regarded as the largest bioterrorism attack in United States history. Y'all, we're not even going to go into their other plot that they had, which was to infect the entire water system of the county by grounding up beavers. Yeah, I don't even know. Additionally... Sheila coordinated the sham marriages of at least 400 Rajneeshis so that they could become residents and, you guessed it, vote. Oh, and they literally illegally wiretapped almost the entire Rajneeshpuram compound. This was the largest wiretapping case in Oregon history. They placed bugs in their disciples' homes in 25 of the rooms of their hotel, Rajneesh Hotel, and in the legs of the tables at the Zorba the Buddha restaurant that they ran. Oh, and Sheila and Bhagwan in the inner circle also plotted to assassinate the Oregon Attorney General, among a variety of other wild things that they attempted to do in order to gain power in Oregon. Meanwhile, all of the Colty McColterson things are still going on. Everyone is listening to Sheila, who is the voice of Bhagwan. There's lots of free love, and we love capitalism, and we love meditating and prayer, and those kinds of things going on, while in the background there's all of these wild, illegal things happening. It's a lot. This is my cat. <laughs> she won't let me finish. <laughs> How do y'all feel? feel about me um, finishing this with her? On my... In 1985, Sheila began to fall out of favor with Bhagwan. There was a group of very wealthy Hollywood elites 
that fell in love with Bhagwan and the Rajneesh Foundation and gave tons of money and also moved to Oregon. Bhagwan had a taste for the fancy. So when this Beverly Hills clique moved to Oregon, he really started to spend a lot of time with them. And as it turns out, he also may have got involved with some drugs. He was being given and prescribed these drugs from one of these Beverly Hills doctors, and Sheila didn't like that. Eventually, allegedly, Sheila ended up trying to kill this doctor, but this video is already pretty long, so we're not going to go into that. It's just another thing. On September 13, 1985, Sheila fled the Puram in the middle of the night, claiming that she couldn't handle Bhagwan's taste for fancy watches and Rolls Royces anymore. She and several of her closest associates, I mean, they were probably just followers of Sheila at that point, considering that Bhagwan wasn't even talking, escaped in the middle of the night and fled to Europe. She fled to Germany, but was eventually extradited back to the United States to face like a million of those charges from wiretapping to immigration fraud. She was convicted to 20 years in prison and ended up serving about 39 months, which is not very much time. After Sheila left, Bhagwan broke his vow of silence to literally throw Sheila under the bus. He blamed her for the salmonella poisoning, he blamed her for the attempted assassinations, and he blamed her for the attempted killing of his own doctor. He basically said he had nothing to do with any of it, and every single part of it was Sheila's idea. Let's be clear, he may not have been talking to anyone in the compound and any of the other Rajneeshis, but he was talking to Sheila. And it's a little bit hard to believe that he didn't have anything to do with those plots that Sheila was making. Bhagwan, too, tried to flee the United States in 1985, but was captured and arrested. It's a very exciting story that involves jamming airplane lines and then him being arrested when they just stopped briefly to refuel on their way to Jamaica. Bhagwan eventually pled guilty to those immigration charges and just agreed to leave the United States. After he left the United States, he just basically traveled the world and didn't stay too long in any one country because he wasn't really welcome there. By the end of 1985, Rajneesh Puram in Oregon was basically abandoned. The word cult comes from the Latin cultus, which means to till or cultivate. That in and of itself doesn't sound too bad. In fact, religions like Judaism and Christianity have been referred to as cults throughout human history. So we're going to go ahead and talk about what we deem destructive cults instead. This will help remove some of the controversy and make it really clear what we're talking about. These are cults like the Mansons or Jonestown, where it's not really in question whether or not what they were doing was destructive. So the question is, does this, the Rajneeshis, pass the destructive cult test? There are lots of psychologists that have studied cults and have produced lists upon lists of characteristics of what makes a destructive cult. For our purposes, I'm going to go with psychologist Robert Lifton, who studied cults in the 1980s and was a professor at Harvard Medical School. He defines cults by three characteristics, and I like short lists, so three characteristics sounds great to me. First, they are led by a charismatic figure who is godlike in some ways and demands to be revered. From my research and what I can see, there is a definite check mark in this box. 
people left their entire lives to be with Rajneesh. They abandoned their friends, their family. They gave all of their life savings to the Rajneesh Foundation just to be with this charismatic leader and to listen to what he had to say. In fact, they didn't even leave when he wasn't speaking to them at all and was only speaking through his secretary. Second, the group has some kind of indoctrination or thought control. It's kind of hard for me to express it, but when you watch this documentary footage and you read about the Rajneesh Purim and the Rajneeshis, the people that were there still talk about it with tears in their eyes about how wonderful and incredible their experience was at Rajneesh Purim. Sheila herself still talks about how amazing her time was there and how much she loves the Bhagwan, even still today, even after he completely abandoned her and, and really tried to throw her under the bus just to protect himself. She has said, quote, It is a crown that I still carry today and was never something to be ashamed of. It was my honor to be living close with men like Bhagwan. He had a major influence on my life's experience, which in turn influences my work." End quote. These people who lived at Rajneeshpuram were complicit with immigration fraud, poisoning, attempted assassination, and more. If that's not thought control, I'm not sure what is. Lastly, there has to be some kind of exploitation of the members. That can be financial, physical, sexual, spiritual, but some kind of exploitation. First of all, I'm not sure you can consider all of the people experiencing homelessness that they just scooped up and bust into their compound in order just to vote to be members, but that screams exploitative to me. Additionally, if you can live in a place where you can see all of your life's earnings, whether that's a small amount from the house that you sold in order to move there or millions and millions of dollars being used to buy Rolls Royces for the leader. And I don't mean just like one, I mean almost a hundred and million dollar watches and still stay and not question anything. I think you're being exploited. So I'm not sure if this qualifies as a cult, but in my opinion, it passes the sniff test. The people of the city Rajneesh voted to change the name back to Antelope in 1985. Today, the former site of the Rajneesh Puram is known as the Washington Family Ranch. It's a Christian summer youth camp run by the organization known as Young Life. As for the Bhagwan's original ashram, it's still functioning in India. You can go there and study Rajneeshism, and they'll even give you one of those red robes. Rajneesh died suddenly on January 19, 1990. He was only 58 years old. His death certificate lists his cause of death as a heart attack, but many of the Rajneeshis believe that there was foul play involved in his death. Sheila served time in prison and ended up in Switzerland, where she opened up two homes for people with disabilities. Somewhat ironic considering Bhagwan's views on people with disabilities. She's still living in Switzerland today. Despite all the chaos that the Rajneeshis caused in Oregon, not one person died. And there are many Neo-Sanyasins or Rajneeshis or any variety of other names that are still practicing around the world today. And the vast majority of them never even saw or met Bhagwan. So what do you think? Was this an endeavor doomed to fail to begin with? 
Young Life is a Christian organization, but it's a summer camp. So they likely needed to have different zoning from the ranch zoning that that land was obviously under. So did they have an easier time of it because they weren't an Eastern spirituality or religion? Who was the mastermind behind the Rajneeshis and all of their wild plots? Was it the Bhagwan or was it Sheila all along? How could this have been different if the people who lived in Antelope had a different worldview and the Rajneeshis were more patient and less revenge-focused? I've thought a lot about why this cult has not gotten as much attention even though it's a wildly captivating story, and we didn't even go into hardly any detail about a lot of it. I'm thinking it's because the cults that get a lot of attention are those in which their followers follow the leader straight into the grave. To be honest, I also have a lot of empathy for both sides in this story, both the Oregonian residents and the Rajneeshis. I think both groups made some errors in the way that they handled things during that time, and who knows how things might have been different if they hadn't made those errors. To be honest, I think the residents of Antelope should have just left the Rajneeshis to do what they wanted to without property. They were actually making a lot of improvements and making it quite a nice place to live. They weren't hurting anyone. I think a lot of what the Rajneeshis did was in reaction to the xenophobia from those antelope residents and because they felt like they needed to protect the land that they owned. I mean, do I think they should have taken over the city of Antelope and changed the name and changed all the cities and fried bananas? Probably not. I mean, none of that was illegal. It was a little bit rude, but it wasn't illegal. Should they have made plots to poison everyone in Wasco County and to have people assassinated? No, and those things definitely are illegal. But at the end of the day, I, I think it was just an example of each side escalating things further and further and further until they, they couldn't fix it. Thanks for hanging out with me. If you have an idea for a case, or more importantly, a margarita, feel free to drop it in the comment section below, or even better, come and hang out with us on Instagram. The link is in the description box. Next week, my friends, we're discussing the Capitol riots in January, and I think I'm gonna need a pretty strong margarita, and you probably will too. If you're watching on YouTube and haven't subscribed yet, it would really help if you did, and make sure you hit that whatever bell so that you get notifications. While you're at it, also click that like, and if you're listening on your favorite podcast app, make sure to leave a review. Everything helps spread the word about Mars and Mayhem. See you next week, and remember, there are always alternatives to murder and salmonella poisoning.